Would you still your heart with me this morning as uh, whatever you brought into the room with you? It's part of your story, so just still yourself, pay attention to what you're feeling, what you're carrying, and just ask the Lord to be our teacher this morning. Yeah, Lord, we're inspired by uh, these young people and the, their faith and hunger to grow. And we pray that we would have that hunger now as we uh, sit beneath your word. Give us teachable heart, Lord. Uh, thank you for people like Ian's building into the next generation. Oh, Lord, we pray that what we hear today would build into those that we have responsible for as you work in us what's pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, uh, Aner and Gerlesa Zuluaga are Colombians uh, serving with our denominational mission agency uh, at the literal end of the road in Panama. Like literally, it's the end of the Pan-American Highway. Uh, the jungle of Yaviza, uh, they serve Embora and Waunen people groups, two different tribes who are traditional enemies, although they do agree on one thing, you do not trust Latinos and so, of course, Aner and Garlesa are Colombian Latinos. It's a match made in heaven, right? In the mid-1900s, these two tribes began turning to Jesus from their animistic spiritualities. And then about a decade ago, God's Spirit led Aner and Garlesa to serve the next generation of Wow Nun and Embra young people. And it took time to earn their trust, the trust of these two tribes. And a couple of years ago, I was able to be with them. I joined them uh, for some discipleship training and marveled at the embrace they had received. It was really humbling. And I was also amazed by their little boy. His name is Gabriel, the living example of God's love lived. Because you see, Aner and Gerlesa couldn't have children. And they really desperately wanted children. And then unexpectedly, the elders of the tribes approached them with an, a stunning act of love. The, a baby had been born as the result of a union between an Embora and a Wau nun. The parents were too young to keep the child. And the tribes wanted Aner and Gerlesa to become the boy's parents. So they gifted this child to Aner and Gerlesa. Gabriel literally is the living reality of their call, the transformation of two tribes who once hated each other, and the love of Jesus that changed them all. It's a pretty amazing story. And so there I sat with Gabriel in the jungle up on their balcony, searching for sloths in the trees, sweating buckets because I'm blonde and don't have any hair, uh, and inspired to live out God's love in the way that the Zuluagas demonstrated. And here's this wonderful toddling example of what love does. Uh, we're, we're, we've come to the end. This is the last Sunday of this series that we're on. And so if you've been tracking along throughout this series, No Unknown, whether online or here uh, in, our, in this room, just a quick summary. Our mission is to know Jesus and... Make him known. Our vision is to co-create communities, large and small, where each of us gets awakened, equipped for the unique call that God has on our lives. And then we have values, and they're not in order of priority. It's a, it's a culture-shaping wholeness, 
of being uh, deeper in prayer, scripture, and faith, real in our relationships, choosing God's hope, even through pain, being led by the Spirit, which we talked about last week, as Marcus reminded us. And then this one final one today, living out God's love, which sounds really pithy until you try to do it. You tried to live out God's love? Have you really tried? Jesus says, Matthew chapter 5, in his Sermon on the Mount, he says some very disturbing words. If you go there with me this morning, Matthew chapter 5, it'll be on the screen, but feel free to follow along, either on your uh, device or in this older device. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect." So Jesus calls his disciples, us, to love like our heavenly Father loves, to love even our enemies, to be perfect as he is, which immediately makes you go, well, I'm hooped, because how can we love with the perfect love of God? And what is Jesus even saying by saying, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect in this? Well, it gets a little lost in the translation but the Greek word there is teleos, which means mature, full-grown, and complete. In other words, we are to love in the whole, complete, grown-up way that God loves. And this is crucial if we're to know Jesus and make him known. Because if we only love those who love us, we are not ambassadors of another way, are we? To live out God's love is not idealistic. It's bloody hard work. And if you haven't re realized that, you're not being honest or you haven't tried yet. Because to love is hard work, especially to live out God's love, which is not possible apart from the power of the Spirit of God. And so Jesus, in these words, he's reframing a common thought. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. And he exposes a problem with Jewish application of Scripture the Old Testament, of course, in Leviticus chapter 19, reminded the Jewish nation that they are to love their neighbor as themselves. Love your neighbor as yourself. The law, the Old Testament law, gave no right to hate, misuse, or abuse your neighbor. To God alone belongs judgment on evil, for he is just and good. He can be trusted in it. We often can't be, can we? Israel as a nation then was simply called to faithfulness to the Lord's heart. But over time, that law was massaged. Love your neighbor became those like you, and enemies became fair game. Well, we do this all the time, don't we? We do this constantly. Uh, we know racism and xenophobia wound, but we still love those who like us and easily turn on those who are different from us. Germany keeps digging out from the Holocaust shame of 70 years ago 
And yet this week, did you hear what happened in Dresden, Germany? They declared a Nazi emergency in Dresden, Germany. The local government. The USA had a civil war around the issue of slavery, a civil rights movement, even a black president, and yet there remains a deep divide. Canada has a similar story between settler and First Nations people. My Peace and Reconciliation Network leader, Johannes Reimer, who became a Christian in the Soviet Union is a, and now lives in Germany, he points this out. He says, as a German, he's like, their, his German state bears a great guilt, but North Americans should be slow to point the finger, given what was systematically done to First Nations peoples. We don't like hearing that stuff. Immediately, I guarantee in this room, immediately when you heard that, there was some self-justifying going on in your mind. His point is not comparison, Johannes's point, is not a comparison over who is worst, but humility, honesty, repentance for our fickle self-justifications. Because there are wars, and there are prisons, and there are suburban neighborhoods, and there are pride parades, and there are churches, and there is Leon Avenue, and they can all have something in common, which is we love those who love us. Loving those who love us is no badge of honor. There's no badge for that. And tolerance, this cultural value of tolerance in our society, is not, a, not the high call of Jesus either, because tolerance does not equal love. It can actually simply mask or harness hatred. True love, you see, is exposed not in relationship with those we like, but most fully in the crucible of life among those who are enemies. Jesus' way of talking about love rattles us. Are you feeling it? Do you feel how mm, it is? It's like he's describing air to fish. G.K. Chesterton unearths the challenge. He says, well, the Bible tells us to love our neighbors and also to love our enemies, probably because generally they are the same people. <laughs> Don't you see that when we say we value living out God's love, we, be, we come both to the heart of the matter and the matter of the heart. Love gets thrown around so cheaply, the word. We love all kinds of things, cars, shows, food, teams, and then we love our kids, our parents, or our friends. But are we at all aware of how cheaply we throw around love? First John, near the end of your New Testament, First John is a letter oozing with the grand vision of the church as the vessel of God's love. First John chapter 4, verses 7 to 8, John the disciple writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Do you think he's trying to make a point? Do you think you can catch it? Okay, You don't need to be a PhD biblical scholar to figure it out. Love matters in the kingdom. John 
Interestingly, in John chapter 13, verse 23, he describes himself as the disciple Jesus loved, which is, sounds really arrogant until you realize that actually he just knew how deeply he was loved, so deeply that he could describe himself that way. Can you describe yourself that way? I am the disciple that Jesus loves. Can you say that? Can you actually feel it and actually apply it to yourself as more than words? I am deeply loved by Jesus. I am the disciple whom Jesus loved. No, I am. There should be a war going on in here. No, I am. No, Anthony is. No, I am. Right? No, no, here we go. We, t- we teach our kids the song, right? Probably some of our kids in Sunday school have learned this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Yes, Jesus loves me. You know it. But do we know it? John knew that the love of God wasn't cheap. He was on the island prison of Patmos for living out God's love when he received the revelation. And in Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, in the first word to a church that Jesus gives him to pass on, he says, it says to the church in Ephesus, you have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. You've set aside the love of God. You've sent agape, and that's the, that's the Greek word for it. Agape is this self-giving, self-emptying, preferring the other above yourself, which one of these young people just described, right? Putting that love, that's the love of God. And, and John's saying, or Jesus is saying to the church in Ephesus, you have set that aside. You've abandoned it like a baby at an orphanage and you've walked away. This holy love or loss thereof is revealed in your actions. The love of God, you see, is not mushy sentimentality. It is willful activity led by the Spirit of God that reflects the passion of God. Which leads us to another disciple, Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, Peter says this, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. <laughs> now, Peter knew the crushing weight of a multitude of sin. He proclaimed that he loved Jesus so much that he'd die with him. And then what did he do? He denied that he even knew Jesus. He proclaimed so strongly and fell so far. And after the resurrection, Jesus reinstates Peter, asks him to reiterate his love for Jesus, and calls Peter from his shame to reconfirm who he knew he was. And Peter does this, and then he serves the rest of his life shaped by the deep awareness of God's overreaching, reckless, restoring love. And so he knows what he's speaking of when he says, love one another deeply, for love covers a multitude of sins. Love is not cheap. To live God's love, to extend a love that covers a plethora of offsides is expensive. Love doesn't overlook sin, but holy love goes beyond absorbing sin's horrendous weight to set the prisoner free. This is the depths of the way you've been loved. And so to live God's love, my friends, requires that we understand how deeply we are loved. I'm an only child. I had great parents. Both of them have passed away. Uh, my mom actually died a year ago on Friday. 
So I had these great parents who loved more, loved me more than I probably ever realized, which is generally the case, even in their failures. And, and yet I recall in my tweens a terrible, awful stage between being kid and being, I know, a teenager. I, 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 I've had this deep sense of being unloved and unlovable. And then when I awoke to the love of God and was born again by the Spirit of God when I was 16, the Spirit went right after that place in my soul. Like the Spirit of God just chased that thing down. And Scripture was the light. And I remember, actually, I can still remember, and this week I pulled out that, that Bible that I used at that stage of my life with my, my scribbling notes in it. And I had come to Psalm 27, verse 10. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. <laughs> wow. The Spirit answered this deep pondering. I was loved, and I always would be. We all need to know this. And this comes to us as a miracle. When this light goes on for you, it is a miracle. And when it comes as it did for Peter and for me, the script flips, and we begin to be able to live out the love of God. Because we're all prodigals. Aren't we? We are all prodigals. We took the inheritance, the reckless love of the Father, and we pissed it all away somehow, didn't we? Mm. Oh, yes, you did. Oh, yes, you did. And yet the Father waits, and he squints down the road for you and I. Do you know how deeply you are loved? Or just have these ideas about God? Do you know how far he had to go for you? How we live out God's love is linked directly to how we answer that question. No amount of people liking your posts or affirming what you want affirmed will ever scratch your deepest itch. And it is the earth-shaking essence of Jesus' words in Matthew 5 that now come back to us. Because the question is, can we be loved by one who's not like us? Don't you see that God practices what he preaches? The one most unlike us against whom is our great prodigaling is the one who loves us most completely. Do you understand this? The one most different from you Holy Creator God is the one who loves you most completely. And we all need this deep assurance that we are loved by the one Holy Creator God. And when we get that from there, we can live out that love by the gust of God. Because the love of God at its core is a sacrificial love. And this is the love we make movies about, right? All love movies about sacrificial love. Hacksaw Ridge, any of you seen it? Hacksaw Ridge is, retells the true story, actually, of a guy named Desmond Doss. Desmond was a conscientious objector because of his Christian faith who joined the medical corps in World War II, but he refused to carry a gun. And he becomes the object of enormous mockery and scorn, and, it is, and he's eventually court-martialed. At the court-martial, he speaks with great conviction, and he says this. It's awesome. 
With the world so set on tearing itself apart, it don't seem like such a bad thing to me to want to put a little of it back together. And the judge finally, after the deliberations, responds and says, Private Doss, you are free to run into the hellfire of battle without a single weapon to protect yourself. And this is what Doss does. And on Hacksaw Ridge, during the Battle of Okinawa, he saved 75 soldiers from the Maida Escarpment, both Americans and Japanese. And he was awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor for living out God's love. So on this Remembrance Day weekend, we recognize the complex brokenness of this world, still engulfed in hatred from Ukraine to Hong Kong, and we grieve and we lament and we respect and as a community of the Prince of Peace, we say there is a weapon that overcomes a multitude of sins, the suffering, passionate love of God. And this love only overcomes the world to the extent that there are ordinary Desmonds who know how deep and wide is the love of God. Ordinary people like you and I. Peter knew how deep the love of God goes. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, he continued, and he said this, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. What a line. So that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. What's he saying? Well, the fiery trials... And the fiery tests of love is nothing new. This is actually the participation into the suffering of Christ. The sufferings, that word there, it's more than just the physical pain of the cross that Jesus went through. It's actually the deep emotion, the agonizing love, the passion of God. This is what makes us cry when we feel it. Oh, why does it hurt to love and we participate in love's agony for the world. This is who God is. This is what God does. And this is the love that we value living. And this has always been the church's call. Are we up for that? Or will we only love those who love us? This love, this love, this agonizing, participating in the suffering of Christ's love is what causes somebody to go from Colombia into the jungles of Panama because of an agony you can't explain for those who may not love you back. This is the love that goes into the hellfire of battle with only we the weapon of love itself. This is the love that welcomes the orphan and the widow, embraces the foreigner, visits the prisoner, walks across the street to that neighbor comes to the side of that kid, perseveres alongside those on Leon Avenue who loves the enemy that insults you because of Jesus. We value moving beyond the Twitter patience of what feels good or affirming to participation in the passionate love of Christ, the participation in the sufferings of Christ. And I'm convinced that we have barely scratched the surface of what this love can do. I'm convinced of this. I am so convinced. Jesus was asked by a lawyer how he could inherit eternal life. Jesus agreed that the lawyer nailed it when he quoted the light of Scripture. Love God with all you are and love your neighbor as yourself. 
Do this and you will live, said Jesus. You got it right on. Very good. But the man wanted to justify himself. <laughs> oh, oh, those self-justifying words of ours, eh? We want to justify ourselves. Because surely, surely there are some that we can exclude. Aren't there? I mean, surely God doesn't know the type of people you're asked to love. Agape must have limits. So Jesus tells a story of a good Samaritan. A man left bleeding in the dust and is passed by by a priest and a Levite, Jewish religious leaders with justifiable reasons to pass by. And then there's this great three words in Luke chapter 10, verse 33, but a Samaritan. <laughs> it's so beautiful. But a Samaritan. And here's where the story becomes like coffee. It's wonderful, horrible, all at the same time, right? The story becomes this wonderful contradiction and tension in my life. Samaritans were considered unclean and corrupt, the enemy that we could excuse ourselves from loving. But a Samaritan sees and he is moved in his very entrails. The, the Greek word there isn't just that he had pity or he's like, well, what a poor guy. No, he's like, there was something that moved his lungs and his guts. Like he was so overcome with compassion that he generously loves on this guy. And then comes this horrible question that Jesus asked. And it's horrible because it's so simple. Which of these three, priest, Levite, or Samaritan, was a neighbor to the man who, left, who was left obliterated? Well, the answer is obvious, right? It's the one who had mercy. And Jesus responds and says, go and do likewise. But just notice something. It was the lawyer who asked, who is my neighbor? And Jesus, back to him, is sneaky and disturbing. It's who was the neighbor. <laughs> The emphasis comes to us, not on who they are. The emphasis is who are we. We want to justify ourselves. Jesus just wants us to live out the love of God. What do you do when your enemy outloves you? You repent and do what she's doing. What is revealed when I claim I love God but can't be a heaven-sent neighbor? It reveals the aghast reality that I may not actually know God. The Holy Spirit breathes us to live out the complete love of the Father revealed in the passionate Suffering of God the Son to willfully love into reality God's shalom, his reign of justice and peace, his wholeness and completeness. When we participate in the passion of Christ, we may discover that it is the enemy gifting us the child. And this is the thrilling and bone-chilling reality of God's kingdom. This love that confronts us on the one hand and comforts us with the other. This is the thrilling passion of God that means that even me, with all my warts and my selfish darkness, is fully loved into eternal life. 
And those awake to this become the ambassadors of God's shalom for all living in the hellfire of battle. Which leads us to one last thought. John chapter 13. Jesus is near the cross and his passionate suffering. The Father has put all things that Scripture says under his feet. What an incredible thought. What would you do with all power under your feet? Jesus is given authority over all things. And then it says this in verse 4. So he got up from the meal and he took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. The washing of feet in ancient dusty days was slaves' work. But the king of kings serves his nattering, ordinary union of opposites. And Peter can hardly handle it. Jesus has to, like, basically give him the slap upside the head to receive it. And even more discombobulating for us is that Judas is in the room. Jesus will wash the dust from his feet, even as the filth of his heart remains. And when Jesus finishes, he rises and he says to these disciples, if I, your Lord and Master, do this, then this too is the way you must go. And later Jesus gives a command for all who will know him and make him known. A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another, could you get the point? Live out God's love. And this is not, this is what's so hard for us. This is actually not an option what did Jesus himself call it? A new command. This is the complete, whole, grown-up, spirit-led love of God. And so to live out God's love is a moving of us toward three things and probably many more, but these three I'll summarize. One is that we are ambassadors of God's shalom, his wholeness, his loving heart of justice, peace, righteousness, and goodness. And we are sent as those who are becoming whole by the love of God as envoys of that whole and perfect love. We band together as a family fellowship to be gospel good news of God's shalom, his wholeness. Secondly, we embrace the cost of sacrifice and we participate in the sufferings of Christ. And this is a great miracle. <laughs> People loving sacrificially because of the deep knowing of what God has done for them. And this is disturbingly practical as well. <laughs> How are you sacrificially loving your neighbor or your spouse, or your co-worker, or your enemy? And how are you sacrificially loving with your money, with all that God has put into your hands? And then third, we are moved by the love of God to kneel joyfully to serve. 
We delight in living like our Lord and teacher. We are a kneeling army, obeying our commander, hobbling headlong into the hellfire of battle, saying with the world set on tearing itself apart, it don't seem like such a bad thing to me to want to put a little bit of it back together. Where in the ripples of your calling is holy love needed? Is it needed in your own soul? Like in you? Some people who do a masterful job at loving others have a really hard time knowing their love themselves. And in all their love, they're still trying to earn it. What about in the spot of creation that you tend or in your household, in this fellowship, in this city, or among the people that you work and shop and play and befriend, and in this world where people who once may have been enemies, are waiting. We are ambassadors of God's shalom. We embrace the cost of sacrifice and we joyfully kneel to serve. This, my friends, is the wholeness, the perfection of the Father's love that we have received. And it is of enormous value. And it is our marching orders. It's what we've been commissioned to do. So would you still your heart with me? Lord, we worship you. We're amazed at the way you love us. God, when we hear words like this today and when we sit with your, your such comforting and powerful and disturbing words, Jesus, so much can start to go through our minds and we're so, so easy to move towards self-justifying. We're so even quick to start questioning our own value, whether we're lovable or not. So quick to start to think about those that we can criticize for not loving us enough. And, oh God, forgive us. We, we turn from that. We don't want to live that way. We want to live in the depths of the knowledge of the love of God for us. And then, oh God, by your grace and led by your spirit, we desire to be people who live out this love in this world that so desperately needs it, so desperately broken. And we may know of places and situations and your spirit's prompting us to be people who live out this love. So teach us your ways, O oh God. Lead us for your glory. Fill us with your spirit. And thank you, sir, how much you love us. We give you praise.